Welcome to Leap Lunch, the fly on the wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. I'm Isabella Kaminska and in this edition I was joined by writer and economist Guy Standing, best known for his work promoting universal basic income. But on this occasion, he was in town to promote his latest book, The Blue Commons, a fascinating, albeit disturbing, account into how the application of property rights to the world's oceans has undermined the well-being of the marine environment, skewing economic activity around it. But the issue isn't just about overfishing and environmental destruction. It's also about how the confusion over who owns what is fermenting geopolitical tension. Guy explains how the ocean and the seabed used to always be treated as a commons until the Truman Proclamation of 1945 complicated everything by declaring that all land up to 200 nautical miles off its coast belonged to the United States. This decision incentivized other countries to make similar declarations, eventually leading to the Cod War drama of the 1950s. It's a fascinating tale from a man who is firmly on the radar of the geopolitical bigwigs. If you hang in there, he even recounts his recollections from that time he was invited to attend the secretive annual Bilderberg meeting and what it was like. The surroundings for our interview were a little less glamorous. We met at Italian restaurant De Paolo, just off Gouge Street, for a spot of seafood spaghetti, and the bill came to £100.35. I've never been to just off Good Street called Da Paolo. Um, anyway, we're going to try it out. So, thank you, Guy, for joining me. It's good to see you again, and especially as I'm going to be talking about these issues this evening. I feel in the House of Commons I'm going to be doing a dress rehearsal with you, I, I feel, over this lunch. Exactly. So, I'm looking forward to it. Well, um, what do you fancy? One course or two courses? Let's have a look. Let's have a look. I always... Uh, I would say I'd like something fishy something, but... These are the wines. I'm looking at the wines. Oh, you're looking at the wines. What an error to make. <laughs> I think I'll have a risotto alla marinara. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Do you know what? I'll join you on that. <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being very boring, replicating everything you're having, just copying you. Okay. But, um... There's so much to talk about. I mean, last time I properly interviewed you was when I was doing a, um, a piece about Uber. Do you remember? Sure. And actually, someone just uh, DM'd me on Twitter that they used that video um, as a teaching uh, video. And they said to me, weirdly, just yesterday, they said, and, and we love it because Guy Standing's in it as well. <laughs> and I thought, what a funny coincidence. So, um, how have, you know, I thought maybe we'd just start off, before we talk about your new book, The Blue Commons, uh, I just thought we'd start off with, like, how you feel, um, you know, you were talking to me at that time about how those models, those apps were hugely exploitative. I think when we spoke, it was still quite an quite an out there point of view people love those apps do you remember um so how do you think how have things changed since then well if you remember i'd written this book called the precariat mm. the new dangerous class absolutely and that book has been translated into 24 languages wow and like radio Fury europe it was first published in 2011 and it was basically saying that all these new developments in the labor market mm-hmm. were producing this new class insecure people dependent on charity and benevolent state and they're not getting it 
Anyhow, the the book has transformed my life as well as as uh, affected a lot of people. And I recently received a, a, a news that it's being used in one thousand and sixty two universities as a teaching course. And I've been giving talks on that development in forty countries. Wow! Now that doesn't happen to a boring economist like myself, but it's it's certainly linked to the themes that my subsequent work has been, which relates to the sort of people who are going to be listening to this, which is that the essence of the background mm. was that the neoliberal economics revolution of the 1980s associated with Thatcher and Reagan and uh, the Mont Pelerin society created the foundations for extreme financialization and what I call rentier capitalism. Yeah. And rentier capitalism means more and more of the income and wealth is flowing to the owners of private property. Yeah. Financial property, physical property, and intellectual property. And more and more is going to them, and less and less is going to those who perform work and labor. And in particular, the precariat, which has been growing and growing and growing, uh, is losing out and facing what I called the age of uncertainty. Mm. Okay? Now, uncertainty for an economist is different from risk. Uncertainty is unknown unknowns. You can't yeah. predict the adverse events. And it's associated with a very good book called, by Nassim Tlaib called The Black Swan. Yeah. But of course, what's happened since he wrote that book is that instead of a rare event that comes along occasionally, uh, we're faced with a bevy of black swans. And that bevy of black swans is unpredictable and has huge consequences. And we're entering a new phase of a new black swan, I believe, with the financial crisis I, unfolding yes, now. So I we may really come back to that. I want to talk to you about that. Yeah. Uh, but the, the but I essence, have to first interject and ask, is that my one or your one? I think that's your one. Ah, there we go. That's yeah, the most important thing. Because you've got, it's a bigger <laughs> glass because I've drunk some already. Now, uh, the, the, the thing about rentier capitalism is that more and more it becomes speculative and dominated by private equity. Yeah. Okay? Which are going for short-term profit maximization. Yeah. And that has big implications for the, the subsequent books, which when I was doing my book Corruption of Capitalism, yes. I said to myself, one area that hasn't been explored by people is the erosion of our commons. Yes. Okay? And I gave a talk on the commons in the city of London. And to start with, the audience, city people, were bristling because they were thinking that I was against property, and that's wrong. It was the fact that alongside private property, we've always had common property, yes. the commons, okay? And the commons belong to all of us, as equals, as commoners. And when I was writing the book... House the of Commons, no less. Exactly. And going back to the Charter of the Forest and the Magna Carta, it was about preserving the mm -hmm. commons. Okay, and all the way through our history, the, the, social, the great social struggles have been about, hey, you're taking our commons. Yes. We want our commons back. Peasants' revolts, the Chartists, and so on. So it has a rich tradition. And it, the commons provides us with our social fabric. Yes and our informal networks and so on. It's not just the common green in a village, yes. it's the commons in general. 
And I wrote that book, and then I said, this is a subject that hasn't been given sufficient attention, so I wrote a book called Plunder of the Commons, hmm. with a manifesto of how to recover the commons. And then I said, there's one area that has not been dealt with, and that's the sea. Hmm. The sea. Now, the sea covers 71% of the world's surface. Okay? The sea is, if you measure the economic activity in the sea, is the fifth biggest country in the world. Yes. Fifth biggest, okay? And it's growing much, much faster, but all the blue economy sectors, than economic growth on land. And furthermore, the World Bank and others say that if we're going to have sustained economic growth in the future, now, it's going to be led by blue growth. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I've said that, be careful what you wish for. Because basically, what's happened, and that's the theme of this new book, mm. that the commons, as the sea and all that's in the sea, is being subject to the growth of rentier capitalism, dominated increasingly by global finance. Blackstones, Blackrock, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan are all being drawn in and making huge profits. The private equity is going into the various sectors. So this book is about that. Now, of course, it's uncomfortable. I've already started giving presentations. As I said, I'm giving a presentation in the House of Commons mm. this evening. It's a very depressing story. But the incredible thing is, and this is why I'm pleased you're, you're dealing with this, because we have a green politics, but we don't have a blue politics. It's as if what's out of, out of political sight is out of political mind. How much of that is to do with the legal structures like in jurisdictions obviously encompass um actual territory whereas the, well the that's blue. the starting point yeah. i begin the first chapter says who owns the sea exactly who owns the sea well you go back to the justinian codex uh ad 529534 we won't go to the details here but the book does which is established that there are four types of property private property state property nobody's property and common property and under the codex uh, which is the base of common law for all democracies in the world today mm -hmm. okay the sea and the seashore and the seabed are part of our commons I see. okay now that was accepted for hundreds of years but then the big change came at the end of the second world war when what's called the, the Truman Proclamation, when the United States unilaterally, imperialistically, uh, you know, they were the victors <laughs> in the war, announced that, that 200 nautical miles from all of the coast of the United States belonged to the United States. That induced several other Latin American countries to say, hey, we'll do the same. And that induced several Middle Eastern countries. And then we had the Cod Wars with Iceland and Britain, which the, the UK Wars. lost. Yes. You remember? The yes, 70s? I do recall the Cod Wars. And that precipitated the uh, negotiations that led to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. I see. And that was passed, reached in 1982. Mm -hmm. 
I want the what's called unclos. And what unclos did, and in the biggest enclosure in history. We always think about the Tudor enclosure in Britain of the land and the Victorians enclosing land and privatizing. It was the biggest, easily the biggest. What it did, UNCLOS, was effectively convert 138 million square kilometers of sea into state property mm. in what's called exclusive economic zones. Interesting. And that means that, that a country like Britain, we suddenly had uh, 6.8 million square kilometers of sea we owned. Okay? And it co consequently, Britain has a sea surface area that's 27 times its land surface area. Now, how many people would know that? Very few. That is very interesting. Of course, the UK, I think, has, you know, the British Empire That's right. stems from its uh, supremacy of the sea itself, right? So there's a long history in terms of the UK's dominance. Well, you see, dominance. I mean, you, you, a lot of the geopolitical tensions yeah. we're facing today with China in particular stem from UNCLOS because... Taiwan. No, wait, oh. wait. What happened was that... This rule was entirely arbitrary. Yes. 200 nautical miles, well, what's the basis, okay? The, I, I've explained the basis, but it's purely arbitrary. Mm. Now, we probably should order, but I want I, to get to the... This is I a want key to, fact. I want, yeah, until... Uh, we must... Order. Ladies, we are in, in the basement, which means that we're out of sight, out of mind, but hopefully we... Yes. <laughs> um, Hello. Yes, yes, perfect, thank you. Um, well, let's, let's Let me, pause uh, until until okay. we order because it sounds like a super important point. It is. Very yeah, it's okay. Um, the the China, China. So, do we have time to make the point? Yeah, I'm going to make it in one minute. Okay. Can we order? Very easy. Yes. Two risotto, uh, the sea. Uh, risotto alla marinara. Alla marinara to go with the nautical theme. Okay, so now we're going to get to the key point. So. Yes, we are. Okay, under UNCLOS, yes. reflecting the, the state of the world in 1980, don't forget, was that France and the United States got most. Mm. They each got nearly 12 million square miles, wow. square kilometers. Okay? Then came Russia. Mm -hmm. Then came Australia. Mm -hmm. And Britain was the fifth. Mm -hmm. Okay? And you go down all the countries, what all the different coastal countries got, and you get to the fact that China mm. only got 900,000 square kilometers. Oh. So, How come? So the Is United that States, the, that, because they, had, they, were, they weren't in the power at the time, right. and the, the system was drawn up, the boundaries. Mm. So it was arbitrary. Much of our our sea comes from having islands in various places, 200 uh, nautical miles from that island. You see the same see. with why France got, so, and the same with the, with the United States. This was completely arbitrary. Why we should have yeah. 700,000 square kilometers of Christian uh, de Kuna, for example, so almost as much there as China has altogether, yeah. is, is purely arbitrary. Okay. Now, of course, the Chinese are not too happy about that. Mm. 
and they've been doing various things which everybody is up in arms about because look at them taking this and doing this but then we must we must remember history when we think of judging them because that was not fair yes that was not fair they have a they had a population of over a billion mm -hmm. uh, tiny we have tiny proportion of that you know so that was now what Anklos did is it enclosed that because it made the 200 miles state property okay and that was a prelude to the privatization of what's in the sea and I highlight the various things for example um, it created the possibility for quotas fish quotas and Britain is one of 40 odd countries that has a fish quota system well ben, what basically what a fish quota system is is you create a private property right for a, for, for a fishing company to have a share of the fish that are caught and then Britain made the fishing quotas tradables made the, they commodified them in effect so you could buy and sell other other firms quotas, quotas. Mm. so as a result today uh, 13 companies own nearly two-thirds of all the fish quota in the world in, in, no, in Britain in Britain okay. all our British waters okay and they the, the top five are all in the Sunday Times rich list they're extremely wealthy and let's put it this way they they make contributions to political parties and uh, and the rest of it what is the top name in fishing in this in this like what what name would we know well I'm going to come to that the um, the biggest name in fish farming yeah. is Maui and I want to come to that Maui in a moment because Maui is is epitomizes the uh, the rentier capitalism nature of of what's taking place in this in the sea the the thing is that under the the British system we have allowed these big companies to overfish do illegal fishing and get away with it because we've slashed the budget for our regulatory uh, system, our marine management organization. Under austerity, the government slashed the budget. So we only have 12 Coast Guard boats for our whole of our, our seabed. 12 Coast Guard boats? 12, 12, just 12. You're joking. And, and you will not be surprised that practically every fisherman will know they all break the law. Right? <laughs> but but, but the, the, one of the ironies was that in 2011, yeah. 13 of these uh, big firms were caught in what's called the black fish scam in Scotland and they'd been illegally landing and processing and selling a huge amount of fish systematically making over 60 million pounds and they were caught now you'd think that was a good thing except that the people who did it and they had to plead guilty and everything they were fined but then allowed to continue to hold their quota okay 
so that basically the government has treated it as a civil offence rather than a criminal offence. And we're talking about systematically depleting well over the limits that scientists say. So it's not surprising that our fish populations are practically disappearing. You can't get cod now in the North Sea because they all exceeding and sister and the government has allowed the what's called the total allowable catch limits which is meant to be the total allowable that the scientists say is sustainable to be overdone by 20 percent oh wow okay and i'll give you another example the biggest fishing boat registered in the uk mm. um 114 meters long registered off the east coast and it was caught in the English Channel with 632,000 kilos of illegally caught mackerel, mm -hmm. oh, well over the limit, 632,000. It was taken into Bodmin, uh, the court Bodmin, and the skipper and the owner were fined 96,000 pounds. Not a criminal offence, 96,000 pounds. And then allowed to sell the the mackerel and make a profit of four hundred thousand pounds well in other words crime pays basically now there's a further and they didn't lose their access. and they didn't lose their quota <clears throat> they didn't lose their quota and one of the it's like a bit, a bit like banks getting fined and then be not losing their banking license exactly exactly and then there's another little yeah. irony you remember probably in 2016 just mm. before the the brexit mm. uh, vote there was a flotilla of boats yes. that went up with Nigel Farage mm -hmm. and Banks and various other people, Aaron Banks. And the biggest boat in that was one of the boats that had been involved in the Blackfish scam in Scotland in favour of leave. And the irony is that the, the biggest boats that have been breaking the law are actually foreign-owned but they're registered in for fishing in Britain. So, so about how, almost half the quota today is, is dominated by foreign capital. Who owns it? Oh, different companies. That one is owned by a Dutch company. Um, others are owned by Norwegians and uh, uh, some other countries that are involved, Russian and, and so on with background and then they have a front person and so on so that fishing is in terms of britain the quota system is totally dysfunctional i strongly advocate that if you egregiously break the law as they're doing mm. they should a lose their access to quota and b it be criminalized i think because this is a serious but this is fascinating because it's one of those blind spots that obviously because the mainstream media doesn't really pick up on it apart from like flashpoints here and there like with Brexit but nobody really gets to the details especially in financial markets I think it's something you know like on on the periphery of people's attention it gets totally overlooked because there's no scrutiny of it that's right and then you you I mean with fishing the worst thing globally has been that under UNCLOS, mm. remember this, the United Nations, mm. all the countries, 
there was a set of messy compromises. Mm. The rich countries got the right to navigation across the world. Mm. They, the coastal countries all got these 200 nautical miles. And then the, the rich uh, nations with long-distance fishing fleets wanted to make sure they continued to get access to fishing in developing countries. Mm. So they introduced a little uh, article and set of articles in UNCLOS in 1982, whereby they said any developing country that could not technically catch to the maximum sustainable yield of fish in their waters had to make fishing agreements with a foreign country to, to catch the surplus. Now, as a result, there are over 300... So you're not allowed to do underfishing, is what you're No, saying. no, they had to do fishing to the limit. It was a concept invented, I discussed it in the book, it was a fishing concept invented in 1949 by this slightly crazy American civil servant who said that it's important to fish as much fish as possible up to a limit because it, the benefits for the long-term popula fish populations is you need to thin the, 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 older, the older fish so that the younger fish could breed more. It's a sort of Malthusian madness. So it was concept, and it's still used today because it's been very convenient for uh, getting uh, quotas and so on. So the, the fishing industry quietly liked it. But what that meant was that countries all over Africa, for example, with the richest fishing beds in the world, had to do these fishing access agreements with foreign powers. Mm. Now, to start with, they were dominated by Soviet Union, by Japan, by the United States, by Spain, and so on. But of course, the Chinese woke up. The Chinese woke up, and in 1985, they had 13 boats that were capable of going across the world for fishing. Today, as I put in the book, it's nearly 17,000. Wow. 17,000. So China has been using its Belt and uh, uh, Initiative, uh, Belt and Trade, road, yeah. Belt and Road Initiative, to, um, I call it odious leverage. They've been investing in uh, infrastructure across the world, building ports, building railways, etc., extending their influence. And something like fishing is almost a collateral. They mm. say, okay, we will do a fishing agreement with you. They're, hard, they're hardly paying the country any part of the profits. I work it out, it's about 5 to 8%. Okay, so they're taking the rest. And of course, they don't apply uh, fishing rules. They're chronically overfishing. And offshore, there's often a mothership I've seen them, mothership, doing the processing and the rest of it. So these fishing access agreements have literally plundered uh, the sea. And the tragedy is, it's a form of, if your people are listening to this, uh, are economists, they will know what I mean. It's a form of neo-mercantilism. Because individual countries are backing their big shot firms. Okay? So Spain, for example, has Pescanova, which is their biggest uh, marine uh, firm, and 
it's been caught a number of times uh, overfishing and uh, contrary to the agreements, fishing off Africa or India or elsewhere. And the Spanish government has, and the EU, EU has defended them. So it's like a protectionist it's mindset. It's a protectionist mindset. <clears throat> okay. So fishing... So it's very much like oil champions. Yeah, that's right. Exactly the same. And is there a, a market for... Like, is there like a common commodity market for the for these fish? Like on, on yeah, the world market? Yeah, I'll come to that. Oh. Yeah. Now, then, you, then what's happened is uh -huh. this. We know that the sea... Sea fish is under incredible stress. Mm. Of the 28,000 odd species, over a third are reproducing at below uh, the rate to keep the populations of their uh, from going extinct. Mm. It's incredible. And in 1970, about 3% of all the fish we consume, all the sea fish we consume, came from aquaculture, from fish farming. Okay, today it's well over fifty percent, and by twenty thirty it will be over two thirds. So over over half of the fish we eat in restaurants like this and buy in in fish markets and so on is actually farmed. Mm -hmm. Now, farmed fish produces a new set of problems. But from an economist's point of view, they exemplify rentier capitalism. Because what's happened since about 1970 is you've had a huge enclosure mm. of areas along the seabeds, mm. including fjords and locks and mangroves. Now, mangroves are an essential part of the world's ecosystem. 80% of marine species depend on mangroves for, for various things. Mangroves are hugely important. But since the 1980s, one-third of all mangroves have disappeared. And the main reason for that is that they've been converted into export-oriented fish farms, mm -hmm. okay? And where the World Bank and the big financial uh, corporations have a lot to answer for is that they converted these areas into private property. Mm -hmm. So in order that corporations, multinationals and finance companies could invest in converting them into export-oriented activities. So although about 500 species of marine life are subject to, um, to fish farming, it's dominated by a handful led by salmon and prawns. Okay, Prawns, uh, what the Americans call shrimp sometimes, they they are the ma major export fish and salmon in the, the north in particular is the major fish okay now both have become uh, hugely dominated by multinational uh, companies and finance backing them because them 
this conglomeration effects. And the, the irony is that finance invested mm. many of those areas that were converted into export-oriented uh, fish farms. The local population don't have any fish because they can't afford these export-oriented things. And the local staple fish has been used as fish meal, fish food, for feeding into the fish farms. Okay, So, for example, Chile, which is one of the biggest uh, uh, producers of fish, mm. these days they can't get fish in many shops. They, they're, they're, they're short of it. But the, the one that probably interests uh, British listeners most is what's happened with salmon. Okay? Now, salmon farming started in Norway. Oh, speaking here of fish. Comes, yeah, fishing of fish. Thanks. Uh, yeah. uh, both of the things we're eating are, are farmed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Would you like black pepper? Yes, please. Please. Thank you. My goodness, that looks too much. I'll have a, I like, um, have a siesta before my presentation this evening in the House of Commons. Tomato mix. Oh, I love tomatoes. So Good, yes. Sir. But yeah. let me let me just finish that then. You can. So you were saying salmon. Yeah, the salmon story might put us off our meal. Oh, no. <laughs> because. <laughs> yes, that's perfect. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Superb. Thank you. Epamigiano. Um, so, so UK is... No, no, no. The interesting thing is that uh, Norway started uh, salmon farming in a big way. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. Do you like Parmesan? Yes, please. Thank you. The Italians frown on... Uh, Parmigiano on a fish dish. Yes, but, it, it, it is. But uh, I'm a it is a little bit of a sacrilegious move. But yeah. who, who can say no to Parmesan? <laughs> I am um, trying to find my phone so I can take a picture of it for the. But go on. You yeah, I want to. I want to tell the story about something because it's rather a delicate story. Uh -huh. um, salmon farming started in a big way in. Norway, mm -hmm. and the government started uh, issuing licenses, but basically giving giving away our commons in the sense of allowing. Okay. <laughs> Just getting the ambience. I'm listening. Go ahead. Get giving giving away the the commons, allowing private corporations, and then the big companies started gaining from economies of scale and economies of scope. In other words, they were linking up their various activities in a chain from breeding through selling and distributing. So mm -hmm. they became multinational. And then in 1991, the Norwegian government made the licenses uh, tradables so that you could buy and sell licenses and the that resulted in 
the big boys increasingly taking over all the small farms. And then enter a certain gentleman who is living very close to where we're sitting right now. Oh, yeah? And his name is John Fredrickson. Hmm. Now, John Fredrickson... A shipping tycoon. Yes. yes. John Fredrickson had made his first fortune in trading crude oil mm -hmm. for the Ayatollah in the Iran the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. And today he owns the biggest oil tanker fleet in the world. And he entered the uh, salmon farming business in 2005. And with his vast wealth, He's mm -hmm. currently estimated at over $12 billion. With his vast wealth at the time, he did two things. One, he amalgamated the major Norwegian producers at the time, or some of them, mm -hmm. and created what has become Maui. Ah. Okay. And Maui is the easily the biggest uh, fish farm, uh, salmon farm producer in the world. It produces about a quarter of the world's farm salmon. Wow. A quarter of the world. Anyhow, what he what he did at the same time is that he didn't like paying Norwegian taxes. So he became a Cypriot citizen mm -hmm. where dividend income is not taxed in, in Cyprus. And he uh, also based in Chelsea, he has the biggest private, the most valuable private property in London, in Chelsea, and he operates much of the time, although he has houses and things in various other countries and he operates globally. And in 2015, he was uh, given a special award by Vladimir Putin um, and for doing various deals and so on. So he is a dominant force. Now, Maui is easily the biggest farm producer in Scotland. Okay. And Maui has had a very checkered history. Something like 24% of its farmed salmon don't seem to make it to adulthood. The death rate and the lice infestations are such that huge amounts of insecticide and pesticides and chemicals are used to treat. Now, I've been out to look at these, these pens. And you go out. ask if you've gone to. Well, no, I've been out. Been I've, been out I've been out. And each pen, it's a great circular thing, will have about 100,000 salmon yeah. in each pen. And I've been out so where you see t 10 pens, so a million salmon, all thrashing around. Mm in conditions that are not natural to salmon and they tend the big problem for salmon farming is lice and lice uh, get on top of the fish and they gradually eat them away so what's been necessary is treating them with various chemicals and things to reduce the lice, the lice infections this but is like battery hens absolutely like, like battery hens it is absolutely like battery hens but the, the, the mortality rate is extremely high, mm. but the firms don't pay for that. But every now and then you get mass escapes. 
Now these treated salmon are not healthy for wild fish. So they do a lot of damage when these have these mass escapes. You know, if a storm hits or something like yeah. that. It's happened a number of times off Scotland and in various places. They, they, Maui, Maui operates all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, now, the second biggest uh, salmon producer, a company called Salmar, mm. it's also Norwegian. The, the man who owns it mm. became the world's youngest billionaire mm. at age 18. Oh, wow. When his father, who built up Salma, gave him uh, all the shares, so he became a billionaire overnight. And so he inherited it. Yeah, he's called one of the Salmon billionaires. Okay. Salmon billionaires, wow. Yeah, his father was still alive at the time. Um, anyhow, so. Salmar is the second biggest in Scotland. Mm. And the irony is that last year, last June 2022, uh, the last independent Scottish salmon farm mm. was taken over by Maui. Oh, wow. Okay? And 99% of all the salmon sold as Scottish salmon mm is owned by foreign capital, 99%. Yeah? Right. Now, the irony goes further. In many of the salmon which are produced in Scotland come from roe and from hatchlings in Norway. So they send them over and they grow there in Scotland. So you could almost say they're Norwegian salmon in Scottish waters. So it's a bit of a misnomer. Now, the tragedy is, in my view, intensified because the Scottish government and the Scottish authorities have planned to double production from 200,000 tonnes to 400,000 tonnes by the end of this decade. And we have no ecological control over the license fixations or the escapes. It's still happening. Where's all the demand coming from? Oh, globally, the, the, it's, it's price inelastic. The, the salmon, demand for salmon is, is effectively uh, infinite at the moment. You'd have to put up... Is that up, just like, from, like, countries getting richer? Or, right, who's it's displacing. It's displacing many fish. And um, Maui and others have been accused of dumping in the sense that the US federal authorities have said they've deliberately selling So they're selling making, cheap, price. making it so cheap that yeah. it becomes uh, a preference. In, and I guess that's why we... It's, it's not to do with the sushi trend everywhere, but it's more to do with just it being an affordable food. Yeah. But, but if they're dumping, then how can they be profiting? Oh, they, they make, they, they've got, the profit rate is, is huge, such that private equity and other, and, and the big financial companies are advising their clients that but if you, you dump, can get extremely... But don't usually, don't usually suffer, isn't it, like a loss? No, no, you, because dumping 
they're not bearing the cost. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, Maui and the others, mm. the big ones, they're as I put in the book, they they they're really paying about fifty percent of the of the cost of production uh -huh. because the rest is being borne by the commons, by the, the communities where they operate. The externalities mm. are not internalized. The very the premise of capitalism yeah. is that you internalize externalities. Okay, yes. but they're not. The the, the, the communities. Uh, and the governments that are bearing the cost because they're giving subsidies and so on. Now, the the salmon is is a classic case, but when you look at ports, the same trends to first enclosure, then privatization, then finance moves in, then short-term profit seeking rather than long-term reproduction takes over. Yeah. And I don't think many people know that all our ports in Britain are privatised. They were privatised by Thatcher in the early 1980s. We have 120 ports. And increasingly, British ports are owned by either foreign private equity, mm -hmm. as Teesside, for example, or Chinese Chinese state capital. I, where is our sense of you know, bring back control? Said said Boris. Well, we're not. We we our ports are taken over now. Recently, there's been a scandal in Teesside, which is actually owned by uh, a Canadian private equity company. PD Ports is the, the official mm. owner, but it's owned by Brockfields in the states in Canada. Um, and there have been, the big scandal is that they cleared 250,000 uh, tons of sediment to enlarge the harbour. And they dumped all the sediment offshore and it coincided, let us put it that way, it coincided with complete destruction of all the crustaceans, crabs and lobsters and things. So the beaches became uh, scattered with thousands of dead crowd and destroyed the local fishing mm -hmm. community that's existed for you know, generations, okay? Now, the company said this was due to algae, nothing to do with us, mate. And uh, local communities said, hey, it's due to the sediment, which is poisoned with these toxins and so on. And my argument is that whose side is right is secondary to the point that basically those decisions should be taken with consent and consultation with the local population. That's yeah. the theme that I'm I'm emphasizing. I'm not making a judgment that I think I think in balance the likelihood is that the sediment is a contributory factor at the very least. But that's not the point. Point is that there's not any commons involvement in the decision-making. Well, of course, DEFRA, the government, yeah. have given complete control to the company to be the statutory authority in that area. They have complete control and they are only answerable to the government. 
not to the local community. But there's only two dominant companies. Is that not a competition issue as well? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. Well, I mean, in it's an oligopoly, right? Mm -hmm. um, in in aquaculture and increasingly uh, in ports. I mean, ten companies uh, own eighty-two percent of all revenue from the world's eight hundred and thirty-five ports. Ten companies. So effectively, they are monopolies in certain places and. It's an oligopoly situation mm -hmm. in general. And this oligopoly in most parts, I'll get to mining in a moment, and wind farms and things, just a handful of companies. Now, whether they operate a price cartel or not yeah. is rather secondary because basically in, say, in aquaculture, and particularly in salmon or in prawns, mm. the lead company can be the price setter. Yes. Okay. As a price taker. Mm. Mm. But before you get to like wind farms and all that, so what, how does the actual commodity trading side of it go? This, I remember. So is there like an international market for mm. fish, or is it more oh, localized yeah. mm. and and other derivatives and? Sure. Of course. I mean, the salmon futures market, for example, in Oslo, is cushions. The blows. So, I mean, now they, there's a huge activity in the futures market. Um, so, there will be big gainers from so called cost of living crisis as they, they work out on the futures. There's only one sector of the blue economy uh, that doesn't have a, an effective uh, futures market, and that's sand. But, but that, that's sand. Yeah. Interesting. Well, is that the sort of sand that is used to build islands in Dubai? Well, this is a very under understood part of the blue economy. The second most used and most traded raw material in the world mm -hmm. is sea sand. Mm -hmm. Every year. Over 50 billion tons, 50 billion tons of sea sand are traded. Mm. Now, most of that sand is completely unregulated. There are <laughs> there's a sand mafia is discussed. I've discussed it briefly in the book. There's a sand mafia. Wow. And even Britain exports sea sand. Exports sea sand. What's it useful? Oh, building. You, sea sand is used for roads, for buildings, for nuclear power plants, for everything. Every house has got hundreds of tons of uh, big house. Hundreds of tons of, of uh, sand is used for the construction. Roads. The biggest one, biggest use in nuclear power plants. They use hundreds of hundreds of tons of, of sea sand. Um, and the, I did not know that. Exactly. And it's the sea sand market, the, the trading, is growing at 5.5% per annum. And there's no controls or regulation? Uh, it's hardly regulated. There is some re regulation in the United States, which is the biggest, actually the biggest exporter. Mm. But the biggest user is China, 
If China has building. used China has used more sea sand in the last five years than the United States used in the last hundred years. It's it's huge. They're extending their land area. They're building roads. They're building railways. So it's the sort of sand that's also used for like building yeah. islands. Yeah, yeah. You see, the trouble is, they one big importer of sand is Saudi Arabia. Which is crazy. Well, crazy because they've got a lot of sand. <laughs> you think yeah. they are not short of a bit of sand. <laughs> not short of a bit of sand. But it, it, the problem is that desert sand is too fine to be used for building, for building and construction and, and roads and so on. And, uh, so actually you need the um, sediment to be... Is it, is it European sand? Is it any specific? No. It can be any, any from the water. No, it's contributing. Uh-huh. To the worst, probably no, not the worst, but one of the worst um, developments associated with the, the use of the blue economy, which is uh, land erosion, mm. which is destroy, destroying ecosystems. So you get countries like Bangladesh. Um, and the, it's, so the sand mining is impacting Bangladesh? Oh, yeah, huge. Do they mine sand outside of Bangladesh? Oh, of course, and in the estuaries. Well, that the, sounds crazy. If Bangladesh is like, well, presumably, amp, like going, the Netherlands started it when they started making Holland bigger. Well, th- there was a period when definitely the worst offender, if I use it that term, was the Netherlands. But now it's now it's China, as in many respects. Hmm. That's fascinating. And so, there's this black market in in sand, or is it open open market? It's an open market. It's an open market. But for some reason, there hasn't been a futures market in sand developed yet. Um, You're going to give people ideas. Yes, I'm, I'm by the sound of it. Yeah, I, but I, but the growth by, rate by next week after this podcast, the growth, the growth rate means that by the end of this decade, each year, they will be excavating sixty billion. Tons, and that is that we already know that the results of this is terrifying. It's going to be even worse. We might find Atlantis, though. <laughs> no, I'm just. I mean, this is all. I had no idea there was a sand mark. This, this is fascinating. And tell, tell me. Okay, so there's the fishing side. There's the sand, which, like, who knew? But what about the kind of like now we're hearing a lot about underground cables and subsea cables and Nord Stream and access just for transit, you know, in terms of, um, you know, that's a type of rentierism in its own right, in terms of who, who controls access to these international cables. And, and do, do you touch upon that? I touch upon it, but let me try and pivot. summarize the picture, pivot mm-hmm. the picture by saying that one aspect of UNCLOS back in 1982 was that the, the brilliant person who initiated, Arvid Prado his name, a Maltese diplomat, he wanted to preserve the natural seascape and natural habitats for the future of humanity. Okay? So he, wanted it to be a com- he wanted it to be a commons. Mm-hmm. And part of the agreement in UNCLOS was that there would be a restriction on seabed mining and seabed 
usage. And because of the construction of the exclusive economic zones, this 200-mile thing, that became national. But outside that area, yeah. it's called the area, literally called the area, and it doesn't actually quite correspond to the high seas. But you, we're sitting here just shortly after the high seas treaty has been agreed in principle mm -hmm. in New York. But basically the agreement was that there should be no mining in the deep sea until two things. First, that a mining code mm. should be drawn up and agreed. Yes. Another, to say what would be ecologically sustainable and what wouldn't be doing, you know, mm -hmm. etc., and a sharing mechanism so that the benefits should be shared across all countries, including landlocked countries. Okay, this was part of the set of compromises. You know, sounds fair. Yeah, exactly. So this was this was set up in 1982, but the. UNCLOS only came into effect in 1994 because it had to have enough countries ratify it I see. before it came into effect. And the institutions then were set up in order to do these two things, draw up a mining code, draw up a sharing mechanism. That's 1994. And they set up an international seabed authority based, based in Kingston, Jamaica in the harbour. They get an annual budget of $9 million to monitor and develop for the whole world. You may notice that's rather small compared with the challenge of monitoring all the world. Yeah. Now, 28 and a half years later, the ISA has still not drawn up a mining code or a sharing mechanism. Okay, wait for it. This means that we don't have a system of either at the moment. And the trouble is that they introduced a rule at the beginning that it, these things had to be agreed by consensus. Oh, no. That so that means, that means all, gets 160, all 164 <laughs> countries that are party to, to the uncle, it was a deliberate fix. Because that's a very You'll never get way it. to... Yeah. Yeah. And the United States has not ratified the convention. They've not ratified a lot of things. No, so. no, they haven't ratified it, see? So, now, this is where we are at a frightening point mm. today, as mm -hmm. we sit here. Because under an obscure article, that for a long time nobody noticed, in a very long convention, it says that if a country applies to start deep sea mining and applies to International Seabed Authority, the ISA has two years, precisely two years, to draw up a mining code and a sharing mechanism, otherwise that country can go ahead and start mining. So it's taking advantage of... June, oh. June 2021, uh -huh. the little island of Nauru... Uh -huh. Where's that? Exactly. It's in the South Pacific. Okay. The little island of Nauru, backed and led by a big Canadian mining corporation, CMC, applied to the ISA to start mining. Now, in July this year, unless something dramatic happens, the, a Wild West frenzy could start. And at the moment, I've seen 
this operating, this huge boat that is doing all the explorations in the bottom of the Pacific, uh, is pumping up bilge onto the surface. We're talking about 3,000 meters, 5,000 meters down. And the ecological damage, so the marine scientists are all saying, you can't do it, you can't do it, it's going to be, going to be hell let loose. You're going to be destroying ecosystems. The noise under the, the sea travels thousands of miles, destroys the, the breeding uh, habits and migratory patterns of whales and dolphins and so on. So the, the threat is building up. And at the moment, so as I'm pleased to see that the German government has come out and said, hey, we can't allow this to happen. And the Spanish government has even come out and said it, several smaller countries. Britain has been very quiet. I have a, I have a suspicion I know why. But the, the, why? Because one of the companies... It's British. One of the companies that is involved in deep-sea mining exploration is a, a subsidiary of an American arms company and Lockheed Martin and they, they've been doing preparatory work you see so it's a very delicate, delicate situation very delicate Wow well I mean how does I mean you mentioning Lockheed Martin I mean this is the other part of the whole blue economy which I think you know is now Becoming more obvious is that we're talking. So you've got that. Two, you've got those zones, obviously, that have been marked out for you know sovereign jurisdiction. But beyond that, you've got like what a no man's land, effectively. Or how does the deep sea get divided? Well, the deep sea seabed is meant to be regulated through UNCLOS. That's yeah. But beyond the the, the actual sovereign. Yeah, it's beyond. Right? It's just beyond. So, that's, so the, that, that's the world. And that is, everyone but has equal access, or...? The, there's a difference in the international legal terms between the seabed and the, the high seas. Oh, I see, I see. Okay? The high sea area is approximately 64% of the, of the sea, sea area, okay? Whereas the seabed is 54%. It's, it's, it's a bit strange, but... That 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 does not it overlaps to a large extent. Now the new ocean treaty, the high seas treaty that was agreed at the beginning of this month, beginning of March, um, everybody's been treating it with euphoria. We've got an international agreement to protect the high seas. And, and that's with like China on board and 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 the supposedly, but wait. So they, they agreed on the text in New York, hmm. beginning of this month. Huge euphoria, everybody, you know, the newspapers and everyone saying, fantastic. I saw the Guardian think this is a breakthrough and the Economist likes it, etc. They should wake up to the fact that UNCLOS was the father of this treaty. UNCLOS wasn't ratified for 12 years afterwards hmm. and didn't, it still hasn't come into effect 28 years in advance. Why should we get, why should we think it will be any different with the Ocean Treaty, right? But the Ocean Treaty doesn't treat any of these economic issues. And that's the biggest complaint. I did so a What BB. would you like to see? I mean, what is the better option? I think my, my book is arguing that there are a number of governance reforms 
that would be um, not sexy in terms of sounding big, big shot, but would have strong effects. For example, when you come to fishing, the fishing is supposedly regulated by um, regional fishing management organizations. And they meant to regulate specific species, tuna as being the classic case. Two things have gone wrong. One is those, those organizations have been taken over largely by the big corporate fisheries. Mm. Guess what? They systematically set fishing limits well above the sustainable level because they want short-term profit maximization. You need to have a governance structure that is independent of any interests. Otherwise, that interest is going to dominate. Our producer organizations of, of Britain, mm. uh, which are supposed to regulate fishing, have been taken over by the big boys. Okay? And there's no involvement of local fishing communities, local uh, people, communities, and so on. So I think one of the big things is you've got to get local people. They talk about devolution, but devolution is no use if you're devolving it and there's a multinational running the, running the show. Yeah. So tell me about the wind farms. How, uh, how's That's a big stuff. Because um, one, I mean, this is just observational, like you now see when you fly in a plane across Europe, like you see this giant areas of the ocean that are just full of wind farms and you can see it impacting the flow of air like from the when you're flying over it and I do wonder to myself are there like unintended consequences road, road to hell is paved with good intentions kind of thing well as you know there's a, a big debate about economic growth and decoupling in mm. other words having your cake and eating it so that we can have economic growth without depleting mm -hmm. the green growth. I think this is disingenuous because we're basically pushing the costs into the sea because that's not being taken account. Increasingly, we're treating the sea as a free resource, so not... Um, uh, energy mostly comes from the North Sea, for example. Uh, wind farms are growing like mad. Other countries are doing this. We've got solar, we've got um, wave power, we've got all of this stuff. And all of those things have actual ecological costs and yes. sustainable costs. Plus, they use... I think Greta a lot of recently protesting against some wind farms kind well, of drove it home, didn't mm, it? Mm. Um, you've got a problem with these... Wind farms, they, they use resources, like huge amount of resources, which are energy intensive, getting those resources. Well, this is what I've always wondered, like, in the transition, do you have to actually end up burning more coal in the short term to transition? Um, because it's very capital intensive to, to do it, but then... And also, I found out today, actually, that I didn't realize that, like, 90% of the wind farm blades are made in China. Oh, Apparently, and in Peru. Oh. Peru, because Peru I, is the main producer of balsa wood. I was using the tea wood. as a source, so I oh, wouldn't yeah. be surprised if that's 
No, it was rare earths. Yeah. Uh, mainly from China. That's true. But the balsa wood that has been used in uh -huh. blades and so on, that mainly from Peru, and it's been depleted, so you know, increasingly they're looking for alternatives. But the story that I've told in the book, which I think is a, is a sorry scandal, yeah. relates to wind farms in this country, which is that historically, the crown, the monarchy, was expected to be um, the steward of the commons, mm -hmm. right through history. What that means is they're responsible for preserving the commons and handing it down to the next generation. And the swans. And yeah, that's a little example. Now, as I tell it in the book, in 1962, yeah. the Queen noticed that the Queen, uh, the monarchy, didn't have ownership of the seabed. And it was a time when the And oil, the Queen noticed this. Yeah, she, and, and she okay. talked to her manager of the Crown Estate and said, how do we get the, the rights to the sea? Yeah. So they induced the Conservative government at the time, in the 1964... Continental Shelf Act to make the monarch the owner of our seabed. Okay. But then making the queen the monarch doesn't mean you have the right, madam, to sell that. You're a steward, right? You're a trustee. You've got to preserve that. You are the. You look. She over. didn't go and sell it, did she? She didn't. And I thought she had. She was like. The good one <laughs> in the family. So she so, sold the rights to the seabed to who? Well, some multinational companies. So, so surely what, Charles wouldn't have had any of this. Well, wait, wait, wait. Uh oh, he's worse. No, uh -oh. no, wait, wait, wait. He's feeling guilty at the moment. <coughs> he's feeling guilty. So he's he's offering to send some of the money back to the country. He's asked, "What you can have the money, some of this money back?" I notice a relatively small proportion of the money, but and he's, he's saying, "What do you want? What's the public want to use it for? This money?" Because what happened was that in two thousand and one, yes, the, the Crown Estate quietly auctioned off a vast amount of our seabed to multinational companies to start wind farms. Oh, I see. So okay. it wasn't a good cause. No, wait, wait. Good cause or bad cause, you don't have the right to privatise something that belongs to all of us, okay? Now, what was made the thing worse is that the Crown Estate gained huge rental incomes from that sale. You and I didn't, okay? Part of it went back to the Treasury, but a large percentage, because Tony Blair had agreed that a large they could the queen could have rights to wind farm uh revenue okay in the, in the 2004 slipped way through legislation that people didn't notice at the time or since probably and and Does so prince harry know about this <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that's but, my question anyhow so they, they they sold they've had four rounds of auctions right literally envelopes you you, you if you bid higher and the four biggest companies are all foreign who've taken over over a thousand square miles 
has been leased off. Now, under international, the queen. She did herself, but she her managers. It. Oh wow! Did it? And this was when? This was in nineteen. No, two thousand and one. Two thousand and one. And then up to two thousand and twenty-one. And she this did four rounds. Really, quite like recent. Oh yeah. And okay, so she sold it off to the wind farms, and the wind farms. Well, what is what is additionally scandalous is that they sold off at least. You know, so that they can build wind farms. So there could be thousands of, of wind, far, uh, wind uh, farms out there. And under international law, mm. which we supposed to follow, mm. right, you must, you cannot sell off seabed unless you've done an environmental impact assessment, assessment mm -hmm. to determine, first of all, whether that part is better than any alternative part. Okay. And they didn't, they didn't do, do that. They didn't do that. So how did they get round that? They just... They're the queens, aren't they? They're, they're <laughs> monarchs. So they just... Okay. And well, the government didn't hold them to account. And mm. neither did Prince Harry. And that is shocking. <laughs> um, well, that, that's fascinating. So what's the situation? So we have sold off all these wind farms. And is that really that big a problem? Like, don't we need that energy coming from the wind? I'm not like, how are we going to defeat no, Vladimir no, Putin if we don't have energy, <laughs> like sustainable energy? Well, I hope we will defeat Vladimir Putin. But, no, I'm, I'm arguing that we need to give these issues attention, right? So you're not saying don't do it, just think about a better way of doing it? Well, that's right. I'm not, I'm not against wind farms in principle. I'm against. We do them. need the energy. Yeah, we need the energy. No, I don't think we can get away from the fact that we are fooling ourselves if we can do painless transfer of using fossil fuel energy to renewable energy, and that somehow that's our big problem. What we need to realise is we've got to reduce our demand for energy. That's what we've got to realise. And. Do you think that the current sort of political, um, po like public messaging, fails to achieve that message? Of course. Yeah. Of course. So, does that not mean everyone gets a bit poorer, though? No, not necessarily at all. We're, we've got poorer. I mean, look, the, the public sector workers have had ten percent real wage cuts in this last decade. We've got poorer. We. It's a distributional question and a regulatory question, okay? Um, there is no need to uh, consume vast amounts of energy, but we make it happen because the government gives huge subsidies to different forms of energy. So do you, do you think that, so what's your position on like, subsidies for green are they like and the inflation reduction act do you think there might be externalities that people aren't appreciating now you're dealing with an american um thing because well, the europeans are like upset about it so they're going to put their own subsidies out there there's a bit of a race to the bottom well not race to the bottom but everyone's kind of trying to outcompete each other i'm in general against what that act is doing. Really? In the sense that it's it's 
going for this protectionist measures, mm -hmm. got implicit and explicit subsidies. But I would say that this is in a context where over the last 30 years we built up a subsidy state. All OECD countries and including China. We, we have an edifice of subsidies. Take fishing again. Each year, $35 billion spent globally on subsidies to industrial fishing. Most of those subsidies are ecologically damaging subsidies, fuel subsidy being the primary one. Okay. Fish is the most energy intensive uh, food product. But because of the subsidy, we don't pay the proper price. Okay. So these subsidies are skewing the real price of, of everything. Of course. And is that why the NHS is failing? <laughs> yes. I mean, if you... If, if I mean, you, because I'm just rationalizing. Uh, so no, if you're no, putting lots of subsidies into X and Y, then it's money being drained from other areas, presumably. So... Would there be a better balance if we just allow the market to price those things independently? Yeah. But would that make it cost prohibitive and therefore then the like fish would be out of reach for the average person? No, I think what would happen if, for example, this country itself, mm. this country, each year spends over a hundred million on subsidies to long distance fishing. Okay. Now, the Ocean Treaty, there are all, all these very earnest discussions, say, look, the fish in the high seas are being mm -hmm. threatened by overfishing and this is, right? I've got calculations in the book by many people that shows if you didn't have subsidies, no fishing in the high seas would take place. The profit of it is well below the cost of the subsidies. So it's actually so capital intensive. That it's only of profitable of their subsidies. Yeah, it, 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 it takes... But this is uh, kind of a broader problem across the economy and especially coming out of America and Silicon Valley and VCs basically making a lot of the digital economy appear cheaper than it really is. That's right. And so that's, my, that's been my thesis for a very long time, that we're kind of due a perestroika moment where the real cost of these things... And as you know, like in the USSR also terrible environmental abuse through subsidization. Um, are we facing that sort of moment where eventually those subsidies become unsustainable? Well, I hope so, because in my book, Corruption of Capitalism, When you I say, put just for, for, for listeners who might not have read it or be no, familiar, sure. what's the, like, one line, like, what, what is the corruption of capitalism? The corruption is uh, that... that Everybody claims they believe in a free market, or not everybody, but a lot of people believe that a free market economy uh, would be a good way of allocating resources and etc. etc. But the reality is, we don't have a free market economy at all. Yes. We have nothing close to it, and we've been moving further and further away from a free market economy. And this, agree, this, yeah. this is a form of corruption, and this leads to the power of the plutocracy. And they can then influence the state, dominate the state, 
dominate politicians and you have revolving and doors between fails. politics and democracy fails because the whole... Th so it's, it's yeah. a corruption of what they claim, you know? We, at the moment, we don't know whether a free market would work or not because we haven't had it. When would you sense. say this started? When do you think the corruption of capitalism became, like... Key? And the tipping, the tipping point was uh, in the 1980s when the Mont Pelerin Society economists suddenly went from being, uh, excuse me, some, went from being sort of strange fringe people mm. to being the mainstream. When Frederick Hayek and the Mont Pelerin Society and Milton Friedman and everything suddenly became the dominant ideology. And they believed that if you liberalize financial markets, you liberalize trade, you will get economic growth, you don't need regulations because they hold back growth, etc. What happened as a result of that is that finance became super powerful. Okay? So today, Britain has a situation where our financial assets are over 1,000% of GDP. Okay? And in other countries, it's well over 500%. So finance but is surely now... surely government enabled it through subsidization and, and also right. so it's actually not just liberalization because it wasn't really liberalization because it was skewed yeah of course but no the big bang if you remember was basically allowing capital mobility and, <coughs> and finance and then we had the independence of central banks and so on so they become enormously powerful instruments for protecting the interests of finance we saw the financial crash, we saw during the pandemic, etc. So that's gone with the international architecture reforms of the 1990s, the biggest one being TRIPS. Now, TRIPS, trade-related aspects of intellectual property. Okay. Now, I happened to work in the United Nations at the time, and TRIPS was designed, of all companies, very ironically, by the chief executive of Pfizer. Okay, As well known for its vaccines. Vaccine yeah. Pfizer. Yeah. Okay. And they introduced TRIPS. And what TRIPS did was trade-related aspects of intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And it globalized the United States intellectual property system. So before 1995, as an example, before 1995, fewer than one million patents mm. were filed each year. Okay, and as you know, a patent gives a monopoly profit to the owners of that patent for 20 years. So nobody can compete unless they give them a license or blah, blah, blah. That's not a free market. It's, now, you can defend it in various respects, but actually the defenses break down, as, as I show the data show, it doesn't do what they say, they return to risk and so on, etc. But then, since the passage of TRIPS, mm -hmm. each year over 3 million patents are filed mm. now and a lot of them are rentier of course trolls, pure rentier. troll patents few, few rentier. so we have in force today 16 million patents plus okay all giving monopoly profits and then of course you have hoovering by the big tech companies the big pharma companies the big oil companies they hoover up the patents not by buying or you know, buying the firms so they, the, the firms became commodities. Yes, because they own the patent and then you buy it. Well, they buy up. 
So Motorola, you know, taken over for its patents. Okay, and a lot of smaller companies. We have a beautiful company in this country, DeepMind. DeepMind was taken over for its patents by by Google. And I noticed that Demis Hassabis is now warning about the perils of AI. Yes, quite. <laughs> Even though he kind of made it, which seems a bit of an oversight. <laughs> he made it very well too. He, 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 I, I remember What's meeting him. Yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, I remember meeting him when he was on his way up. And he actually supports basic income, which I was pleased. Uh, and uh, For listeners who don't know, I'll just point out that Guy has been a big advocate of basic income, universal basic income. Yeah. Yeah. And I still am. And we're, I'm doing advising the Welsh government on a pilot as we speak. Do you, do you think that COVID and the... I mean, first of all, finish about Demis. So what do you no, think? I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I was illustrating that... This is not a free market economy. Okay? Yes. Um, the evidence shows that the patent regime does not lead to more innovation or a reward for risks. It's a, it's a, that's a, it's a, the evidence is blown out of proportion, very strong about that. So, but whether or li- one likes it or not, you cannot say it's a free market. What I find fascinating in terms of how that links into UBI is one thing I always wondered is like, given the inequality in the system, the price signals are not getting through to the market at all because the average person doesn't have enough money, discretionary income to, to send a signal to the market about what they would prefer or what they need, right? They're, they're, they're on, you know, they're held back. And, um, but with basic income, you potentially allow for that signal to get back into the market so that there is you know i would i would like to imagine that the upside of it is that you get you move away from this freemium model that has come from silicon valley where people are consuming goods for free because they're so on like so um uh dumped on effectively by the social media networks or whatever that they don't realize they're kind of becoming the product for it. And I was wondering if if a basic income would allow for more discerning choices in the market and a real signal as a result to what people want rather than what is free. Or... I mean, there are various arguments that I think are winning slowly against ideological and stubborn resistance. Um, I believe that a, a basic income is a way of rewarding the commoners for the loss of the commons. It's a way, it's a matter of common justice. I'm very pleased the Pope has come out in, in favour of it, saying that this is a return, it's a common property right in a sense. Um, it's also a matter of, and that's where Milton Friedman came round to it in, in in his old age, he came round to supporting it. He joined our, our, our international network, which we'd founded, which is that you can't have freedom of choice mm. in a market economy if people are so insecure that they can't be rational and make the choices. Exactly. That's what I was yeah. thinking. And I, I think that's an absolutely fair answer. But it is also a matter of freedom. We all talk as if we believe in freedom. A person who's chronically insecure is not free. They have to do what they do to survive. And it's a matter of also strengthening what I call liberal freedom. The freedom to be moral, okay? 
you're only free to be moral if I have actually the capacity to say I'm going to make choices. I'm going to make choices. Because if you're in in a stress situation, you can't. And furthermore, people who are stressed, as you say, which is increasingly what the precariat are today, they lose the sense of rationality. They lose the capacity to sift information. Their stress feeds into mental ill health and they become socially irresponsible. But it is unfair of us, unfair of any of us, to condemn people for making irresponsible decisions if the conditions in which they are forced to live reduce their capacity, mental capacity. And the psychologists have taught us that people who are chronically insecure lose mental IQ. What I find fascinating at the moment with the current inflation is obviously like, and this is why I really wanted to ask you, I know we're probably running out of time, but obviously with COVID, we had the nearest thing to a, to a universal basic income experiment with the stimulus checks and the furlough. You're going to argue that it wasn't anything close. I can get, I can see in your expression. But it seems to, like, one argument is that it has prompted all this inflation. But one other argument that I've been making is whether I wonder the inflation is actually a good thing. And in that it, 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 it now forces co- companies to, to focus on profitable ventures that are um, not just necessarily pie-in-the-sky stuff because it has to respond to real demand of real people. So you see this weird situation in in the economy now where the tech companies are the ones that are really suffering from the high inflation environment and the banks, weirdly enough. But the real economy is still doing okay, relatively speaking, and you've got the job growth um, of, you know, in terms of jobs being very um, tight, the labour market. So I'm just wondering, is there a silver lining to the inflation if it's prompting a reallocation of wealth from, say, finance to the real economy? I I take a different approach. And I'm one of those who feel that the um, raising interest rates, monetary policy at the moment, is no solution to a sensible question. Um, And depressing real wages, as Andrew Bailey has been actually among those supporting, Mm. uh, is is contrary to what is required economically and politically. I think um, we're going to have a big financial crisis. What will happen in terms of the finance system, as we're seeing, I, I live in Switzerland, so I've mm. just, just experienced the Credit Suisse being absorbed by UBS, um, as you will have an, a large number of... Sorry um, for your loss. Yes, quite. <laughs> quite. No, my, 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 <laughs> my bank account is UBS. It's always has been. <laughs> but but the, point, the point I'm making is that uh, a lot of the smaller banks... Uh-huh. that are exposed, like in, in California and other regional mm. banks, will be absorbed by the big boys. You so get more the, monopolization. Yeah. I mean, I did a two-hour television program last week. I don't know why they asked me, but in, in Sri Lanka on TV. And the Sri, Lankans, uh, Sri Lanka is a classic uh, end-of-road type of economy, that when you have an international financial crisis or an international economic crisis, those are the countries that get hit first, mm. right? So Sri Lanka's 
GDP shrunk by over 10% in the last 12 months. They, their debts got way out of control. They've had to go along to the IMF and they've had to go to the Chinese. The Chinese have said, okay, we'll, we'll relieve you of your debt repayments, but we're going to take over your port. Mm -hmm. So they now have a 99-year lease on the major port. Which brings you back to the Blue Commons, where Absolutely. you've gone. Mm -hmm. That's right. And the IMF have come in and they've said, you've got to privatise and you've got to sell off your assets to finance, etc. So you've got a classic case. And meanwhile, your living standards are dropping. Yep. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I've been doing all the talking, so I haven't eaten so much. That's all right. <laughs> I'm, I've eaten everything. Because <laughs> it was very nice and I was really hungry. Thank you. Um, do you have to rush or no, no, do you have a coffee? I have a have coffee. Time? Okay. Could yes. we, what yeah. is the time? It's half past two. Oh, yeah. Twenty-two. Then I must go. So do you have time for one coffee? To one coffee. Up? Then Fabi. Coffee and a bill at the same time. Yes, yeah, so of course. Um, uh, which coffee? Double espresso for me, please. The single espresso, please. So go on. So um, close on a big point. Yeah, the point, the point is this, that you're putting up interest rates. That implies that this is a cost push. But actually depressing real wages in these circumstances is going to make a lot of private individuals mm -hmm. and private households unable to continue to pay their debts. Credit card debts. Which makes them a national um, and you're going burden. To you're going to have a huge surge of homelessness, which we've already got in this country, food banks, etc., which are a disgrace, a disgrace to a modern economy. We have nearly 3,000 food banks in this country. 3,000! So you're, you're passing the burden to the state, effectively. Yeah. But the state is not taking that burden. And it's not going to take it. So no, 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 you no, end up with a kind of... No, you'll end up with, as what we've seen, and I've been... Uh, uh, what I've seen is, in other countries, is a surge of populism, okay, which we had over the last decade. Um, what's it called? The uh, the right wing uh, club that that meets every year. Uh, the right wing club that meets every the year. Mont Pelerin Society. The, the, the Atlantic uh, Council. No, uh, the, the, I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, a right wing club that might. The Freemasons. <laughs> no, Henry Kissinger. Henry, uh, uh, um, foreign uh, no, no. Council for no. Foreign Relations. I'll, I'll come, it'll come in a minute. I don't uh, know. If I've got Rentier cap Capitalism book here, uh, I'll remember. Should, shame on me. But it's a good story, so yeah. I can end with it. Uh, Mont Pelerin Society. Uh, John Birch Society. It's they worse are. than that. It's worse than that. Okay. okay. I'm getting my... You're getting it wrong. I'm getting my clubs wrong. <laughs> in the society. Uh, and, and they meet every year. Bilderberg. Bilderberg. So it's the Bilderberg. The you, Bilderberg. you went to the Bilderberg. Well, no, you see, I one day in 2000, the beginning of 2016, uh -huh. I, got, I suddenly got an uh, email uh, inviting me to go and speak to the Bilderberg Society. Uh -huh. I thought this was a joke. I thought it was <laughs> some sort of lefty peer person, friend, calling me up and saying, we want you to speak. So I didn't take any notice. I thought, I don't know, whoever. But and then three days later, I got a phone call, one early evening. I said, why haven't you responded to our invitation to come to speak to the Bilderberg Group? So I said, well, I didn't think it was real. real. <laughs> so, 
So, and I said, will you please send me another, and, I, and if you're real, uh, I'll think about it. So I then, when I got this invitation to go and address them in Bremen, their <coughs> annual uh -huh. meeting, which mm -hmm. happened to be in Bremen. So I, I, I asked my friends around Europe, uh, proper, do you know, people who know about these things, some politics, some politi I said, should I go? Should I go? They all said, yes, Guy, you should go. Of course you should. They missed here what you're trying to say. So in the end, I accepted. I got the VIP treatment. It was taken to, to Bremen. The, the airport was cleared where we were taken through. Are you allowed through. to talk about it, Guy? Yeah, They're not going to disappear I, 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 you, are they? I, I, yes, probably. <laughs> probably, probably it, you have the Chatham House rules, of course, apply there. Um, but the thing is, they... They'd got it got out into the German press mm. that the Bilderberg Group was meeting in Bremen, and among the subjects they were going to be talking about the precariat. Yes, and of course the press put my name immediately together because I was known for the uh, the term and everything. Yes. And so when it came to my session, when I was talking to the hundred people there, um, the chair of my session, who was the chief executive of Deutsche Bank at the time, stood up and he said, well, the next session is the most famous of this of this meeting because it's already got out and they already know that our speaker uh, is, is Guy Standing. So imagine how I felt explaining to this group. I stood up, literally three meters in front of me, looking like an owl, was Henry Kissinger. Oh my gosh. And just behind him was Christine Lagarde, and then there was Mark Rutte, and then there was Osborne, and then, and then there was several kings, the head of the CIA, the head of NATO. And, and it was really funny because I had to present this. I remember Martin Wolf was there, of the FT was there. I think he's a regular. Uh, he's a regular, you yeah. see? He's a regular. Anyhow, so, so I stood up. Thank you. And I explained. Thank you very much. I explained. The link between the development of rentier capitalism and the precariat. And then I said, look, the only way we're going to prevent a drift to authoritarianism of the left and right mm. is if people have basic security and you address the needs of the precariat. And I said, I'm going to predict, I said this, it was early 2016, I said, don't be surprised if a lot of the American precariat vote for Donald Trump, don't be surprised. And don't be surprised if a lot in Britain vote for Brexit. Because what is being offered in Britain is a choice between the continuation of austerity under Cameron, who was leading the thing, and Osborne, or return to the past. Yes. Okay? A lousy choice. But the precariat won't vote. Well, they didn't vote. They didn't vote. They stayed at home. That's the tragedy. So we got leave on a fraudulent, fraudulent case. I did. Uh, go on. <coughs> so. So, and on page one of the precariat. On page one of the precariat, which was published, don't forget, in two thousand and eleven. Mm. I said, unless the needs and aspirations and the insecurities of the precariat are addressed, mm -hmm. we will see the emergence of a political monster. Mm -hmm. okay. And they responded how? Well, that 2016, my political monster was there, but with Trump. 
But did they did they believe you? Oh wait, yes. So the reaction was very strange. I expected that everybody would leave the room and rush for the bar. On the contrary, there was um, Graham, Lindsay Graham. Lindsay Graham was there. Uh, you may know he's a thing. And Peter Thiel sat next to me. He was the big funder of, of Trump. And yeah, they, they all started asking me questions, or put up their batons and asking me questions. And Christine Lagarde came up to me after. I'm not allowed to say what everybody says. But all I can say is there was a lot of people agreeing with my thesis. And quite a few of them, including Demos and uh, head of Google and various people, were agreeing that we needed to move towards a basic income as part of the solution of resolving this because populism is not to anybody's benefit. Now I've been invited three years in a row to Davos to speak about these things and each time I had a debate on the panel with Larry Fink. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I don't usually mix with these types, you know. <laughs> these are my, I'm just a small, small bloke. Anyhow, the, the point was that um, there is an awareness among the intelligent people who are the billionaires, the plutocrats and the people that the current trends are are leading to sort of neo-fascist tendencies. And and I'm afraid this current government in, in this country, I mean, they've just announced this horrible way of treating refugees. It's part of an authoritarian drift where we don't respect our civil traditions, our commons, our, our legal processes, our due process. Did you think that the response to COVID was fair? No, of course not. And it, I'm, why I smiled earlier when you were saying this is I actually wrote a, a piece for you uh, in the FT at the beginning of the reaction to COVID back in the early 2020, in which I said, this is the worst response you could take and I said it in the Financial Times article, so I'm not saying it mm. being clever after the event. I said their policies will lead to the most regressive social policy, furlough. Furlough is a regressive. It doesn't help with precariat. It helps the middle class with their £2,000 a month, whereas the lower income got 800 or £600 a month, and anyway. the precariat got nothing, yeah. okay? £20 extra. So... That one thing, it's making it... But I said, worse still, in terms, it's going to lead to huge fraud. Yeah. Huge fraud, okay? And I predicted it at that time, and people poo-pooed that. So, no, it won't. Well, it did lead to huge fraud. It did lead to huge fraud. And I, as far as I can say, the article that you printed, you know, that I wrote, that we can genuinely say it was ahead of the curve, because nobody else at that time was saying that this would lead to now. the support of zombie firms and so on. So that was the worst possible answer. So we've got huge poverty and insecurity at the bottom. And yet there was no criticism really of it beyond uh, that article. That's right. It's and an I found that very surprising. Uh, very and I feel like the media just like decided to not question any of this stuff. And it was very weird for me. Which is you know, I mean, I teased... Jeff Tilly, who's the chief economist of the TUC, is a friend of mine, a nice bloke. I teased him, I said, Jeff, how can the TUC support this scheme? Mm -hmm. It's increasing inequality. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's increasing inefficiency. It's not, it's not helping the low-income people. What, what is this sort of policy? And you're, you say you're on the left? It, for me, the fellow scheme was a scam. There's a scam, but the, the, the 
cheap loans to businesses. They're shocking. You know the biggest beneficiary of, of all those loans? Was BASP, the, the, the chemi German yeah. chemical giant. It got one billion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in other words, whether you're politically on the right or politically on the left or the center or whatever, we should be consistent. And the state has been corrupt. All these contracts that were given out, come on. Oh my God, that was the worst. I mean, this, this uh, hotel owner uh, of Aurora, he got, he got contracts to put up people for quarantine. With, he's got over £700 million. Pounds. What do you think then? £700 million. Pounds. Before we like, wrap up. Yeah, we should. You, I must but go. I, mu I must ask you this question. The Silicon Valley Bank rescue, um, I mean, that speaks to me of also a weird allocation of, like, so there's an argument that taxpayers didn't have to face the burden, but actually forcing HSBC to acquire it de facto puts this very exposed bank onto the ring fence part of uh, of the of HSBC. So it will have a impact on, on I mean there's an inquiry going into it, but what what was your take and what's your current take on, on the financial crisis? How do you see it evolving? That's my last question and we go yeah. we can rush. Yeah, my, my my feeling is that sitting here in March uh, 2023, in a sense, uh, we've got a, a rumbling financial crisis in a crisis of geopolitical proportions that is really frightening, a rising China with an alignment with Russia which is sick, sickening, and the Americans seem to be making things worse by upping the stakes with protectionism and anti-Chinese rhetoric and actions. And that's from the Democrats. Exactly. And it seems Which to me, confuses me. It seems to me that this is compounding the financial crisis. And as we know, a global financial crisis is always fundamentally about confidence. Mm -hmm. Okay? We've got the run on Deutsche Bank. We've got the run on certain other banks in certain regions of the world. They might be yeah. down by the time we finish lunch. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So for me, this this is this requires incredible acts of collective statesmanship, mm. and it cannot be left. The economic policy cannot be left to the central banks. Yes, that cannot be done. I mean, I don't think the Federal Reserve is being very clever, savvy. But uh, I'm not a banker. But nor do I think Andrew Bailey's upping interest rates and saying that it's wages and so on. I don't think that makes sense at all. And But then the, the Europeans... Or telling like he did the other day, he, he actually was quoted saying, well, merchants just shouldn't raise prices. <laughs> I, I mean, like, come on. Come on, that's historically hilarious. Just like no, but Diocletian. I mean, but, <laughs> but I mean, for me, this is, this is a transformational crisis we're facing. Yeah. And you cannot put... It, it down to a single set of things. You've got to realize this is, in my view, where I've put it in the books, is it's a crisis of rentier capitalism. The insecurities and inequalities are so dysfunctional, and you get political ramifications. So we've got we've got a discredited governance, a discredited government, uh, without having a very exciting alternative at the moment, without 
having without having a vision of the future that is compatible with a good market economy and a good social as networks and policies and that's why i think the commons issues come back because when i talk to a middle class or an upper a cross class audience on the commons people get it mm. they get it yeah we need the commons we need a civil commons we need the social commons we need the natural commons we need to share the benefits share the costs of the commons without that we've got a dystopia coming that is frightening and and it's it's political and social and you've got millions going to food banks well on, on that note thank yeah. you so much guy and you know you have to rush up to Westminster so yes take care thank you very much okay great That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, brought to you in association with Hire, the pseudonymous messaging app that won't share your personal information unless the law demands it. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blind Spot at www.the-blindspot.com.